You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Well, let's grab our Bibles and turn to Revelation 21. We are almost there, almost to the end. If you don't have a Bible, the seat, Bibles in the seats in front of you will be uh, allowing you to follow along. Page 1041 is where you will find Revelation 21. I'm going to read the text. As I do, I invite you to, as I always do, ask questions of the text. Identify words and concepts that you want to understand better. And hopefully as we spend time together... Our study will accomplish all of that. Revelation 21, verse 1, the Apostle John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride, adorned. For her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. If you've been coming to Ascend for a while or you know me, you know I love technology. And I especially love technology made by the greatest technology manufacturer in all the world, in all of history, in all of the future, Apple. Last year, I saw on an advertisement the advertisement of a new Apple Watch, the Apple Watch Ultra. It was beautiful. It did things no watch previously or in the future will ever be able to do. The only problem was the price point. So I started saving up gift cards, and because of the generosity of friends and family members, I have an Apple Watch Ultra. Now, as I opened that soft white box, I was almost mesmerized by the beauty of the new. I did what I always do with a new Apple product. I had bought protection devices and resources, and so I immediately installed the screen protector. You can see through it, so you get to see the beautiful manufacturing. And that screen protector promised to protect my screen from scratches. It was not successful. What it did do is catch 
dust and grime and cause my Apple Watch to not look new. So, of course, I submitted a warranty claim and got a new screen protector, and I took off the old, put on the new, and once again, I would glance down at my watch, not because I needed to know the time, but because, other than my wife, I needed to see something beautiful. Now, here's the problem. We're months after that warranty claim, and guess what? Scratches have been solved, but this continues to catch the dust and the grime. I think this lesson is a reminder for us in life that in life, the new always wears off. You know, the Bible for 65 books has been trying to teach us as humans that everything the world has to offer is not going to really be new. It's not going to really last. It's not going to ultimately satisfy. And the team will put a quote up on the screen to help center our thoughts on what I think John is teaching us in these eight verses, and that is that life in this world cannot deliver really new. And yet the world system advertises that it can, that somehow the new girlfriend, somehow the new job, Somehow the new Super Bowl championship or the new video game console, and I know at this point I'm kind of getting silly, but, but let's get real. The new church, the new wife, the new life season will somehow deliver on the promise of new. We've had 65 books and really 20 chapters that have been trying to teach us what I think John is going to bring home in these last two chapters. Look at the big idea in your notes. It is this. The old is being and will one day be made new. But listen to this. Really new. Let's inform our minds and our hearts with two points, which, by the way, this service is going to be compacted because we have a family chat after this time with our members And so just know we're not going to cheat you, but that's why we've had fewer songs. I'm not going to cheat you on the the text, but we'll be ending before we typically do. So let's dive in together. Number one, John reminds us to sit in the reality of the old. Sit in the reality of the old. The first phrase in verse one is one, if you've been coming to our series with which we are familiar. It says, look at the text, then I saw. Remember now, for multiple chapters, we have seen this phrase or a similar phrase, after this I saw or after this I heard or then I heard. And what I've been presenting to you is that that is John signaling to his readers, not order of time, not order of chronology, but instead that this is just his next vision. This is his next scene. And for several chapters, we have seen this phrase introduce a replay of judgment. Judgment in the form of seals. Judgment in the form of trumpets. Judgment in the form of bowls. We saw judgment in the world system and the counterfeit that it provides for humanity. Then I saw has signaled to the reader that a replay of judgment is going to take place. But look at the next phrase. This would have been an aha moment for the readers and probably for John. Then I saw a new heaven. We haven't seen that before. And a new earth. 
And if you're like me, as a human being, when I see the picture on the TV of the new Apple Watch Ultra, I'm immediately wanting to know, what does it do? When can I get it? How much does it cost? We want to know these details, but I think John is keeping us from those details in these opening verses, causing us to sit in the reality of the old. Let me show you in the text where I get that from the words themselves. Look at the end of verse one. It says the first earth had what? Passed away. You're gonna see that phrase again in verse four. It says the former things, look at the text, have passed away. When we read scripture, often the repetitions of words inform us what the original author intended. And I think in these two phrases, we see the bookends of a complete thought. John is wanting us to hold off the temptation of getting to the temptation of wanting to know the new to sit in the reality of the old. The word passed away means to discontinue a condition or state. That's very important. Because a lot of people have wanted to take a verb like this and try to understand, is God going to destroy the earth and then create a new one? Is he going to burn the earth and then cause the new one to rise out of its ashes? And the point that John's making is not more horizontal or detailed, but instead theological. He's wanting us to understand that the new state is in contrast to the old state. This is a new state, a new condition. It's the same word that Paul used in a passage that might be familiar to you, which is 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Same word, same principle. The old has what? passed away. This is a new condition. It is a new status. It is a new state. But I think in his effort to use vocabulary and draw from the Old Testament, he is wanting us to linger in the old so we're prepared for the new. Let me show that to you by looking at the text itself. First, the contrast between earth and heaven. Don't you wanna know what the new earth and new heaven look like? Don't you wanna know what it's going to be like? Well, stay tuned for next week. But the contrast that he's making is between the new and the old, the second and the first. In fact, he uses the vocabulary, the first heaven and the first earth. Let me just pause right here and say that as I mentioned when I preached Revelation 20, this is a theological concept from these words. First and old is temporary, new and second is permanent. That's important. That's why Paul, when he's talking about Adam, speaks of a first Adam and a second Adam. That's why when we talk about covenants, we talk about an old covenant and a new covenant. That's why in chapter 20, when we talked about the first resurrection and the second death and the implied second resurrection and first death, we understand the theological point that John is making, and that is the contrast between temporary and permanent. So he's drawing our attention to the temporary earth in which we find ourselves. 
Another phrase that draws our attention to that is the last phrase of verse one. Do you see it in the text? The sea was no more. Now, I agree with the majority of the commentators that I read, and that is that John is not speaking about a literal sea. He's not speaking about the new heavens and the new earth not having any water. What he's doing is moving us in the 21st century back to the first century to understand what the sea represented to the original audience. And the sea represented chaos. It represented the source of evil. You see this in the Psalms as the psalmist is contrasting God with the sea. That's why the disciples were so amazed, not just at the physical reality of God calming the sea in Christ, but because of what that represented. Chaos and the source of wickedness have been stilled. What authority does this man have to command the seas to obey him? We've seen this in the book of Revelation. The beast in Revelation 13.1 came out of where? What does it say? The sea. This is not pointing us to there's a sea. Is it the Mediterranean? Is it the Pacific? It's showing us that out of the source of wickedness, the world system comes. And what John is doing here is settling us in the understanding of the old that our world is corrupted by sin. And do we not see that? I used to have a full head of hair. Maybe next week I will again. We'll see. You have to stay tuned for that one. He's causing us to linger in the old. He's also doing that by reminding us that the new heaven and the new earth, listen to this, will be indistinguishable. Right now, can you see the heaven that exists? The answer is no. We read in scripture that from time to time, God pulled back the curtains. He did so for Stephen. He did so for Elisha, I think it was, or Elijah, one of the two, back in 2 Kings. But right now, we can't see the existing heaven. But in that day, the new heavens and the new earth will be indistinguishable. And he's causing us in these descriptions to experience and sit in the reality of the old. The influence of sin is present for us today, but one day it will not. The next image that he gives us is found in verse 2. He says, the, he saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming, coming down from heaven. Do you see it in the text? For some of you who are Marvel fans like me, doesn't this conjure up the image of the city that's suspended above the earth? I don't think that's what John's describing. I don't think John is describing a literal city suspended above the earth. Why? Because of what the rest of Revelation has been showing us, but also because of the vocabulary in the text. How does he describe the city? It's coming down. Do you see it? Has John used the phrase coming down in Revelation? Yes, many times. And how has he used that phrase? Well, the majority of it is not intending to provide physical distinction, but instead spiritual source. This is coming from God. This is God's definitions. This is God's parameters. It is coming down from heaven. But listen to what it says next, or read it yourself, as what? 
as a bride adorned for her husband. Literally in the original language, it says as a bride adorned by her husband. Here's another reason why I don't think this is a literal city. Cities are not adorned as brides. People are. I think John is wanting us to sit in an Old Testament concept, which is the city, Jerusalem, in Israel, to understand that it served the purpose to point beyond a literal city to a spiritual reality. And that's what he's unpacking here. If you want to study this further, let me give you a few verses. Galatians 4, 21 through 31. Linger in this. Hebrews 12, 22, linger in this. And what you begin to see is something that the prophets were beginning to unpack, but the New Testament reveals fully, and that is Jerusalem in Israel served a purpose that it no longer needs to serve because the true Jerusalem has come. That's Christ. I'll unpack that more here in just a moment, but there's a third Old Testament reference point that wants us to linger in the old. And that's the third point, which is covenant language. So we've seen the contrast between the earth and the heaven of now to the earth and the heaven of new. We've seen the holy city symbolically described as Jerusalem, as a bride coming down from heaven, adorned by her husband. This is the people of God. But now he really brings this home with covenant language, doesn't he? In fact, if you're using the English standard version, the phrase dwelling should have a footnote. And if you look at that footnote, what does it say? Literally, the Greek term is, it's tabernacle. Isn't that interesting? And when you see this, you begin to see that I think John is intentionally using vocabulary that the original audience would have understood to be able to communicate not a literal vision, but instead a symbolic vision pointing us to a theological reality to bring this all together. The tabernacle was the place where who dwelled? God. That gave way to the temple. That gave way, guess what, to the church. In fact, here's some verses that you can write down and study this later. Genesis 3, verse 8. It says that the presence of God was with Adam and Eve in the garden. Leviticus 26, 11 and 12, using same vocabulary as Genesis 3, 8, describes the temple or the tabernacle as the place where God would dwell. And then you can go to Ezekiel 37, 27, and you begin to see that Ezekiel is referring to a physical building in Jerusalem, but he's doing so spiritually, which I think Paul advances in 1 Corinthians 3, 16. Do you not know, beloved, listen to this, that you are the temple of the living God. Why? Because his spirit dwells in you. And I think John is now bringing this in verse three of Revelation 21 full circle to explain that when this is all complete, he will dwell with his people and his people will dwell with him and they will be the people of God enjoying the marriage they were designed to enjoy. So it begs the question, who are the people of God? Well, let me give you a passage. They'll put it up on the screen. You can turn there, or you can just write it down or take a picture of it. Exodus 33. Remember, the Old Testament 
is made up of authors and prophets that are describing the same furniture in the redemptive story room that the New Testament will be able to describe, but in the Old Testament, the lights are down low. And so here you see Moses explain something in this text that the New Testament will turn the lights on and John will, in Revelation 21, turn them all the way on. Listen to this. Moses wants God to show him his glory. And the Lord responds in verse 14, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Moses says to the Lord, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. This is the point. It's God's presence that's most important. So how do we know that you are genuinely the people of God? Verse 16, how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct? There's nothing mentioned in here about circumcision, is there? Nothing mentioned in here about keeping the festivals. Nothing mentioned here other than defining God's people as those whom God dwells with. Here's a quote to bring it all home. Who are the people of God? Those who by faith depend on his completed work of atonement by Christ and display this faith by patterns of faith, motivated obedience to his word. That's the people of God. Do you see anything about ethnicity in this? Do you see anything about religion in this? This is what Paul says in Galatians 3.28. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. Beloved, listen, there's no horizontal designation that makes you or me the people of God. It is us putting our faith and dependence on the completed atoning work of Christ. Have you done that? See, John is bringing this full circle. The seeds that were planted in the Old Testament are coming to full bloom. The dimly lit room with the furniture being described in the Old Testament is now turned all the way up, and we see how this is brought together. But before we can get to the details of the new, we've got to linger in the old, and I'm going to give us an opportunity to take a breath. And all God's people said, amen. The, The older you get, the more data you have to justify the back in my day comments. So I'm gonna lean on that data that I have. And back in my day, you had to stand up, get off the couch to turn the channel on your TV. Back in my day, to turn the screen on my 19 inch, and all God's people said, poor Jeff, (laughs) 19 inch TV, To turn it from fuzzy to less fuzzy, you had to move these things, listen, young people, called antenna. They called them rabbit ears, two long sticks that the more you moved them, the more the, well, the the picture never got clear. (laughs) You know, this last Christmas, I had the opportunity to go out and get a nice TV, quite a bit bigger than 19 inches, 4K. I really enjoy it. But here's what happened. The Super Bowl commercials started coming out and the ads started coming out and I realized I could spend the same money now for a TV that's 10 inches bigger. In fact, the manufacturer of the TV that I bought makes a 98 inch TV. Do you know the discipleship I could accomplish (laughs) 
with a 98-inch TV. They have 8K TVs now. And as I've been processing this, I've started to ask myself, Terrell, what is wrong with you? What's wrong with me is that I'm fascinated by the new and I want to run to the new and I don't linger in the old. The fact is, my TV now is so much better than that 19-inch TV that I grew up with. Linger in the old to appreciate the new. That's what I think verses 1 through 4 are reminding us. And there's one more opportunity to do that, isn't there? Verse 4, look at this. Remember the present reality. When the new comes, beloved, verse 5, he will wipe away every tear. Amen. Which, by the way, this isn't something John is making up. He's referring to Isaiah 25, verse 8. Almost exactly the same words. He's wanting us to linger in the fact that this life experiences mourning. This life experiences pain. It is influenced and impacted by sin. Let's linger in the old before we race ahead to explore the new. Because when we linger in the, role, in the old, then we're able to, number two, stand in the resolve of the new. We're able to stand in the resolve of the new Oh, I want you to see verse 5 and recognize it as one of the most important verses in all of Scripture. He who was seated on the throne, we've done enough work to know that is God. Might be Christ himself. And he says this, behold, remember, behold, alerts the reader to the fact that what follows is significant. It is major. Behold, listen to this, I am making all things new. Blow our minds. Why? Because of what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 1.5. It'll be up here on the screen. In life under the sun, guess what? There is nothing new. Ecclesiastes 1.19. Whatever is broken and crooked in this life cannot be made perfectly straight. And yet the God of the universe is saying, listen, I am making all things new. Glory to God. But the tense of the verb is important, isn't it? It's a present tense verb. He's making all things new. They're not all new completely. And this, again, is the contrast between the old and the new, the first and the second. What gives him the right to be able to declare this? Because look at the next command, write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. Now, the phrase, these words, I think specifically refers to the book of Revelation, but by extension, the entire Bible. Two reasons for that. Number one, where have we been all throughout our study of Revelation? All over the Bible. In fact, one of my mentors has said to me that he thinks the book of Revelation is first and foremost about Christ. We get that from the opening verses. But then subsequent to that, very quickly we see, it's also training the reader to interpret scripture. And so I think these words are intended to initially describe the book of Revelation, but then by extension, the entire Bible, because after all, what does Proverbs 35, 30 verse five say? All the words of God are true. What does 2 Timothy 3.16 say? All scripture is God-breathed and profitable 
And it says here, it is trustworthy and true. There is no error. It's not 99.9% true. It's not some sections are true and some sections are tradition. It is true. What an amazing resource. But why is it true? Is it because there were amazing authors? Is it because it's scientifically valuable or valid? It can be valid? No, it's because of who wrote scripture and who the scripture points to, the Alpha and Omega. Do you see it in the text? That's how he can declare in the aorist tense as a snapshot, it is done. So he's both making all things new and yet he's declaring it is done. Why? Because of who he is. And for the Greek speakers, that would have been easy. Alpha, it's the first letter of the Greek language. Omega, it's the last and everything in between. But for us non-Greek speakers, he helps us out, doesn't he? He's also the beginning, Genesis 1-1 and the end the book of Revelation. Oh, this is an amazing God, and he has been on display for 20-plus chapters. Look at how good he is. Verse 6, to the thirsty I will give. Listen, friend, are are you thirsty? And be careful how quickly you answer that question. You see, the woman at the well was asked essentially the same thing in John 4, but she thought horizontally. I am thirsty. I've had salt this morning. I'm tired of bringing a jug in the middle of the day to the well. Give me thirst as I define it. But what God says here is I'm going to quench your real thirst with the only water that can satisfy. And he speaks symbolically pointing to literal truth. He says, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. This is an Old Testament reference. You can write down Isaiah 55 verse 1. It almost says exactly these same words. And there's other passages up on the screen. Beloved, listen, I asked you, are you thirsty? The answer to the question requires a definition of the thirst and the source. And that thirst and source is Christ. Christ is the living water. So so if you are answering that question, yes, then that means you are parched for Christ. You can only be satisfied through Christ. And there's additional Old Testament imagery here. It's right here in the text. It says, verse 7, they will have this heritage. It's literally the word inheritance. And if you study the Old Testament, this concept of inheritance or possession or heritage usually centered on what? On the land of Israel. In fact, let me give you some passages. You can write this down and look at it later. Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. Genesis 13, 14 through 17. And Genesis 15, 17 through 20. All of these are passages of God telling Abraham, I'm giving you land in the Middle East. In fact, in chapter 13, he says, look to the east and the west. I'm giving you all of this. In chapter 15, he talks about existing nations as plot points on map. He's pointing them to land in the Middle East, but listen to this, not as the ultimate fulfillment of those promises. 
We begin to see that in other Old Testament passages. You can write these down. I'm giving you a lot to study this week, so no excuses if you're like, I don't know what to study. Psalm 2, 8 through 9. Inheritance moves from being limited to plot points on a map to the entire earth. Psalm 37, 9 does the same thing. Hebrews 3, 4. Oh, I love this. Hebrews 3 and 4 goes back to the Old Testament, saying that Israel would come back to the plot points on the map and find in them Sabbath or rest. And then the author of Hebrews is saying, yeah, but, but that wasn't the end game. The end game is finding Sabbath rest in Christ, which, little teaser, when we get to the rest of 21 and 22, that's the point of heaven. He's Christ is there, and we're with him. It doesn't even need sun doesn't need a temple. Here's a quote to put up on the screen. The physical land promised to Abraham and his physical descendants was intended to be a billboard guiding the story to the true destination. Well, what's the value of a billboard? It's to get you to something else. Once we arrive at the destination, the billboards have served their purpose. That's the land in the Middle East. That's Jerusalem. That's the Mosaic Covenant. It's all pointing us, the billboards pointing us to Christ. And once Christ is here, listen to this, beloved, and you can write this down. He is the true Israel. The church is not the true Israel. Jesus is the true Israel. That's what Matthew is developing in the first five chapters of his gospel. Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is the success where all others have failed. And that leads us to the next designation. It says, I will be his God and he will be my, well, what does it say in the text? Verse seven, my son, that's an Old Testament concept. Adam was the first one called the son of God. Genesis 5, 1 through 3. Israel was the next one called the son of God, Exodus 4, 22. Solomon, the son of David, was the next one referred to as God's son, 2 Samuel 7, 14. And now we are able to see that Christ is the true son of God. That's why the gospels call him the son of God so many times. And if we are aligned in faith by depending on Christ's completed work, then God says, then you also are my son. The inheritance is Christ. The sonship is Christ. Our faith is in Christ. How do we know? Oh, here's another quote I skipped over. By faith, the people of God are those who depend on the completed work of the true Adam, the true Israel, the true son of David, and we get to enjoy his inheritance and his identity. That's what John's steering us toward. That's the new. It's not the pearly gates. It's not the streets of gold. It's not whether it's a cube city and how are we going to get around. The, the point of all of this is the inheritance is Christ, our identity is Christ, but now we can ask the question, how do we know? And the answer is right at the beginning of verse 7, and it's been all over Revelation, hasn't it? The one who conquers. The one who conquers. What I love about this word is it, once again, turns us to Christ. You can write down John 16, 33. Jesus says, take heart, <laughs> listen to this, same Greek word. I have conquered the earth. I have conquered. 
So because Christ has conquered, then we can conquer. How do we do that? By putting our faith in Christ, our dependence in Christ. By asking God to forgive our sins because of the payment of Christ on the cross. By surrendering our lives to King Jesus. Removing ourselves from the throne of our lives. Placing Christ on the throne and delighting in serving him for the rest of our lives. And it will continue to be a lifelong service and a lifelong growth. And the longer we go in it, just like being married to Sally, I realize there is not a greater joy than being married to Sally today. And I thought it wasn't possible for that to be the case on the day I said I do. It's the same thing with our walk with Christ. The first day, we just are little children. My sins have been forgiven. Amen. Glory to God. But we spend time with him. We get to know his word. We we incorporate in the body of Christ. And he continues to grow us, to teach us that the day today is better than any day before. And the same will be true tomorrow. And we continue to grow and grow more like him. It's a pattern of life, dear friends. And the decisions we make daily lead to patterns of life, which leads to a legacy of faith. But it's so easy, isn't it, to succumb to marketing and advertising in this life? I used to work at McDonald's, and I can tell you this. I've taken the frozen discs out of the boxes. I've slid around on the grease floors. I've dropped the baskets of fries into the grease and taking them out, having to resist the urge of knowing I'm going to create cancer in someone. (laughs) But isn't it amazing when you watch the commercials for McDonald's, how attractive those burgers look? The McRib looks like real meat. (laughs) Isn't it amazing that the people on the advertisements are usually beautiful, they have nice skin. They're athletic looking, now I know there's Retailers like Target that are trying to take pictures of people that look more like you and me, but notice something about those pictures, the lighting, the product placement, the high-res cameras. Advertising is always promising something it cannot ultimately deliver. But the fact is, is we usually are moved by these advertisements, aren't we? We usually don't investigate or research unless it's really expensive or it's going to have life impact. Let's research this. Because John also says in verse 7, but as for, and he gives this list that we probably as churchy people can say, well, yeah, I can see how people with patterns of life like that end up in the lake of fire, except for the first one. What does the first one say? Cowardly. I don't know about you. I I can be cowardly. The word is an interesting one, and in fact, it'll be up on the screen. The concept of cowardly is a self or horizontal dependence that leads to fleeing at the slightest sound. Listen, this is found in Mark 4, 40 through 41. It is a fascinating passage where after Jesus calms the sea, the disciples are rebuked for one afraid, and then the other afraid leads to worship, and it's two different words. The first one that they're rebuked for is this one, cowardly. They are so focused on the horizontal, so focused on themselves, that as the Jesus response, slightest threat, even a strong threat, tempts them to derail and run. That's not conquering. And that's why this word 
coward as well as the rest of the list are Old Testament vices that are the opposite of conquering. See, what John is doing one additional time in these eight verses is moving us to sit in the reality of the old so that we can stand with confidence and conquer in the new. Let me remind you, beloved, no matter how dark your past, no matter how much you think you cannot gain victory over sin in your life right now, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can be a bride adorned by her husband. You can be an old thing being made new. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Friend, listen, you, you are here today not by accident. God has something for you. And it's not just learning about Greek words or historical context. It is to be confronted with the Christ of Scripture so that you will respond. For some of you, you'll continue worshiping. For others of you, you might need to commit to him for the first time in your lives. And for others, you might have a need in your life to repent. Friends, do not let the preaching of God's word and the study that we've done together fade into the background like so many other things in our lives. Invite the Holy Spirit even now as I pray to cause the seed of what we've studied to take root, to be watered throughout the week, to produce gospel fruit in your life. If you wanna pray with somebody, there will be members of our prayer team at the ends of the stage. They would love to get with you to a quiet place and pray with you. But friends, let's sit in the reality of the old so that we can stand with resolve for the new. Father, thank you for your word and this amazing passage of scripture. I pray that you would use it in our hearts, in our minds, to accomplish your intended task, which is to conform us to the image of Christ and make more disciples for him. To the glory of Christ, I pray. And all God's people said, amen.